In our last lecture, we looked at multiculturalism as a policy and a philosophy for managing ethnic difference. In this lecture, we're going to concentrate on the European models, with particular reference to the United Kingdom, Germany, and France. When examining the United Kingdom, we see from the early 19th century onwards, there were flows of populations from a range of colonial sending nations, mainly determined by material and resource needs. The growing imperial and colonial domination of many territories, such as India, Africa, and the Middle East, resulted in a firm established connection between these lands and the United Kingdom. As the UK exercised political and economic domination over its colonies, many individuals migrated from their materially deprived circumstances to meet the demands of cheap labor in the UK. This was accelerated by the needs of the First World War, when settlement at many British ports increased primarily to meet the requirements of the shipping industry. Immigration necessarily decreased in the interwar period, but the relationship between economic demands in the UK and migration from colonial territories became well established and would continue for many years to come. The culmination of the Second World War left the United Kingdom short of domestic labor to meet growing indigenous demand. Workforce limitations were also common to a number of other Western European nations, including France and Germany. However, the UK's policy radically diverged from that of other European nation states, since it ironically failed to capitalize upon opportunities to, quote, exploit immigrant labor for the particular aims of domestic economic expansion. Becoming aware that the recently established British citizens from the Caribbean and South Asia would make Britain their permanent home, the restraint of net immigration in response to public opinion in effect mirrored domestic economic growth. The Labour government of the time in essence reduced the inflow of immigrant labour to meet domestic political concerns. It demonstrated a profound preference for quote aliens from Eastern Europe rather than uh, in fact, British citizens. In general, immigrant groups have come to and settled in the UK for thousands of years, entering the economy and society as medical students, bankers, spice merchants, sailors, servants, and indeed slaves. In the late 19th century, Indians from upper-class backgrounds arrived for the express purpose of engaging in education and enterprise. It may be well contended that the present South Asian population holds comparable educational and entrepreneurial aspirations. However, it is derived from the more underprivileged regions and, and the sending regions. Um, and, and what we do find is that this provides more obstacles to overcome as part of adaption to the new society. The goals of South Asians at the beginning of the 1960s were to generate as much wealth as could um, before subsequently returning to their countries of origin, reinforcing by a myth of return. Of course, this did not come about, whether by chance, that is by opportunity, or by design due to legislation. East African Indians arrived in the 1960s and the early 1970s, essentially because of the Africanization of former lands colonized by the UK. Their economic profiles were middle class and professional across the sending societies, and they wanted to accomplish those very ends in Britain. In 1973, Ugandan Indians were ejected out of their country of birth, 
and those admitted by Britain were expected to put down routes away from already densely populated South Asian pockets, defined as red areas. Bangladeshis came to Britain when acute economic hardship and the desire for family reunification required many to look uh, towards the UK during the late 1970s and the early 1980s. In the post-war period, British discourse of minorities has transformed from colour in the 1950s and 1960s, to race in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, to ethnicity in the 1990s and to the early 2000s, and to religion in the present climate, with Islam receiving the most attention. Moreover, there has been development beyond the recognition of ethnic minorities as homogeneous groups to discerning differences within and between Blacks and Asians, and then within South Asians, to differences between Indians, Pakistanis, and Bangladeshis, and in the current period in relation to South Asian religions between Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs, for example. Religion, in other words, has emerged as the major social signifier. In Britain, this burgeoning sort of interest has come from both awareness of Islam within the Muslim population, its heightened international profile, as well as rising academic and policy-making interests. The post-war phase of immigration has occurred principally as a result of political dislocation, where many migrated from their home nations because of political troubles, decolonization, or displacement as a result of wars, conflicts, or other forms of political persecution. There are certain profiles in the education, employment, and entrepreneurial social realities of different minorities that suggest disintegration. Educational achievement is noticeably poor amongst South Asian groups, although it is apparent that there are strong ethno-religious variations in relation to certain forms of underachievement found amongst the sons and daughters of rural urban first-generation South Asians. This experience of marginalization in education is often revealed in less successful higher educational outcomes. This tends to be followed by low levels of graduate employment, although it is important that certain, that certain consider of, of, of community culturally that may be important to consider when studying the education of young women. Moreover, statistical testing of labor market data suggests that religious minorities suffer a religious penalty that is in addition to an ethnic penalty, although there is disputation when analysts utilize different quantitative methodological approaches. For Muslims who enter the realm of self-employment, the desire to do so is largely determined by structural limitations than the active and constructive utilization of ethnic and or cultural resources or opportunities. Because opportunities have largely eluded South Asians, they may have been contributed to the ongoing obstacles experienced by this group of individuals. Whilst much of the white British indigenous population has left the inner cities through white flight, a significant majority of South Asians have been unable to relocate out of the inner city areas in which they first settled. Subsequently, we find that these localities have become even more deprived with new employment regeneration in other parts of the city and in different economic sectors. This situation has created a barrier for economic assimilation. For British minorities, assimilation has not happened to the degree imagined, partially a re reality based on discrimination and hostility towards individual 
and groups potential to positively integrate into majority into the sort of majority economy and society but also because of an underappreciation of the fact that ethnic minority communities have come to rely upon their group class and ethnic resources to mobilize what little economic and social development they can achieve. As we move away from the UK's case study and, and onto the continental Europe example, there's no doubt that Europe's an ethnically diverse continent as a whole. There are very few, if any, nations in which there are no population groups with an ethnic identity distinct that of the country's titular nation. What is, however, disputed is who counts as a member of a minority, where such minorities live, and how many members they have. The majority of European countries have minority populations below 20% of the total population. Bosnia and Herzegovina is the only nation where no absolute majority exists. At the other end of the spectrum, Ireland, Luxembourg, Malta, and Portugal have a virtually ethnically homogeneous citizenry. The question we need to ask ourselves is, where do European ethnic minorities come from? In order to answer this question, it is first of all necessary to distinguish between different types of minorities. We can first say there's a national minority, and these are ethnic groups who live on the territory of one state, a host state, but are simultaneously ethnic kins of the titular nation of another, often neighboring state, the kin state. So examples of this might be Germans in Central and Eastern Europe, South Tyrol, Belgium, Denmark and France, Greeks and Turks in Cyprus. Um, Albanians in Kosovo, Hungarians in Romania and Slovakia. Not only are there national minorities, but there's transnational minorities. And transnational minorities are ethnic groups whose homeland stretches across several different states, but they do not form that a titular nation in any of them. So think of Basque and Catalans of Spain and France, or the Frisians of Germany and the Netherlands. We can also look at indigenous minorities, and this is where ethnic groups living in their ancestral homelands is only one state of which they're not the titular nation. So for example, we can look at the Corsicans and Bretons of France, the Galicians of Spain, the Scottish or Welsh of the United Kingdom. Finally, they're immigrant minorities, and these are recent, mostly post-World War II, uh, immigrants who have often not been given citizenship. So a good example of that might be the North African immigrants in France or the Turkish guest workers in Germany. When we turn to Germany, we see that the Chancellor has actually told German citizens that not allowing people of different cultural backgrounds to live side by side without integrating them has not worked. Chancellor Merkel has said two out of three children under the age of five have a migrant background. And while in the 1960s people were brought to Germany as guest workers, there was never really an expectation that they would stay forever. And I quote, they live side by side with us. For a while we lied to ourselves saying they will disappear again one day. But that's not the reality, Merkel said. To say we are happy about living side by side is wrong. The approach has failed utterly failed. For Chancellor Merkel, she suggests that Germany should demand that all immigrants learn to do more to integrate, 
She says this is the only way in which they can get a fair go. So in other words, what we can articulate from this sort of stance by the state is the idea that multiculturalism has totally failed. In fact, the, the flood of immigrants among, has holed back the German economy uh, according to many parties within the German state. Um, although Germany does need more highly trained specialists as opposed to the laborers who have sought economic advantages in Germany. It's interesting because when we look at the German example, there's a, there's a bluntness that, that is quite striking in the political conversations and the willingness to speak of a dominant German culture. Of course, this is a concept for obvious reasons Germans have been sensitive about asserting since the World War II. The statement should be taken with utmost seriousness and considered for its social and geopolitical implications. Of course, it should be considered in the broader context of Europe's response to immigration, not only to Germany's response alone. It might be worthwhile for us to begin with the origins of this problem. Post-World War II, Germany faced a severe labor shortage for two reasons. There was a labor pool depleted by the devastating war and the economic miracle that began on the back of revived industry in the 1950s. Initially, Germany was able to compensate by admitting ethnic Germans fleeing Central Europe and Communist East Germany. But the influx only helped assuage the population lost from World War II. Germany needed more labor to feed its burgeoning sort of export-based industry, and in particular, more unskilled laborers for manufacturing, construction, and other industries. To resolve the continued labor shortage, Germany turned to a series of successful uh, sort of labor recruitment deals, first with Italy in 1955, and after we saw labor from Italy dried up due to Italy's own sort of burgeoning sort of economy, Germany turned to Spain in 1960, Greece in 1960, Turkey in 1961, and then Yugoslavia in 1968. Labor recruitment led to a massive influx of guest workers into German society. The Germans did not see this as something that would change German society. They regarded the migrants as temporary labor, not as immigrants in any sense. As the term implied, the workers were guests and would return to their, country, their countries of origin when they were no longer needed. In fact, many Spaniards, Italians, and Portuguese did just this. They did not particularly trouble the Germans, who were primarily interested in labor. The Germans simply did not expect this to be a long-term issue. They did not consider how to assimilate these migrants, a topic that rarely came up in social and public policy discussions. Meanwhile, the presence of migrant labor allowed millions of Germans to move from unskilled labor to white-collar jobs during the 1960s. An economic slowdown in 1966 and full-on recession following the oil shocks of 1973 changed labor conditions in Germany. Germany no longer needed a steady stream of unskilled labor and actually found itself facing mounting unemployment among migrants already in the country leading to the Germans saying that there has to be a stop in labor recruitment. This actually occurred in 1973. Nonetheless, the halt in migration did not resolve the fact that guest workers were already in Germany in great numbers. And these migrants wanted to bring their own family members to Germany. In fact, in the 1970s, we saw most migration switch to family reuni reunions 
And we also saw that Germany sought to, to close that loophole. As the Italians, Spanish, and Portuguese returned home to tend to their country's own uh, successful economic miracles, Muslim Turks became the overwhelming majority of migrants in Germany. As the migrants transformed from a temporary sort of community to a multi-generational community, Germany had to confront this sort of issue that was arising. At base, they did not want the migrants to become part of Germany. But if they were to remain in the nation, Berlin had to ensure the migrants became loyal to Germany. The onus of assimilating migrants into the larger society increased as Muslim discontent rocked Europe in the 1980s. The solution Germany finally agreed upon in the mid to late 1980s was multiculturalism, a liberal concept that offered migrants a grand bargain. Effectively, what it's suggesting is you can retain your culture, but pledge loyalty to the state. In this conceptualization, Turkish immigrants, for example, would not be expected to assimilate into German culture. Rather, they would retain their own culture, including language and religion, and that culture can coexist with German culture. Thus, there would be a large number of foreigners, many of whom could not speak German, and by definition did not share German and pan-European values. While respecting diversity, the, the policy seemed to amount to buying migrants' loyalty. The deeper explanation, however, is that the Germans did not want and did not know how to assimilate culturally, linguistically, religiously, and morally diverse individuals. Multiculturalism did not so much represent respect for diversity as much as a way to escape the question of what it means to be German and what pathways foreigners would follow to become Germans. When we turn to the French example, we see a similar theme where the majority of immigrants who came to France came with the hope of improving their economic life. The majority of migrants who came to France came from former French colonies. They worked in difficult sites and sectors of the national economy and had not a desire to go back to their countries of origin. Furthermore, through operations of family regrouping, marriages, etc., they created their families in France. The children born in the 1960s and 1970s were already considered French in present day. They have been schooled in France. They consider France as their own nation by gradually adopting not only local customs, but by appropriating deeply all the richness of the French language. From that moment, the issue of cultural diversity in France started to be viewed differently. Thus, the nation found itself encountering a difficult question to resolve. The second generation of immigrants wanted at the same time to preserve the cultural identity of their parents by claiming their rights to the cultural differences and felt also being proud to belong to the citizenship of the French nation. They were at the same time two statuses considered previously as contradictory, equality in citizenship by law, and a full recognition of cultural diversity affecting a not so insignificant part of citizens. The previous concept of Republican assimilation was not a sufficient policy tool to respond in a satisfactory way to these new problems. After three decades of glorious years, rather, of, of, of great economic and social development, characterizing the period following the Second World War, the economic crisis arrived in France as it did in Germany uh, with the 1973 oil shocks. 
the unemployment rates became unbearable. Former immigrant workers, once considered as indispensable for the good functioning of the national economy, were now more and more seen as a concurrent factor of, of a degrading economic life. A part of the French public began to become very sensitive regarding their presence on the national soil, considering them not only as elements producing an, an aggravation to the issue of unemployment, but also as an eventual risk for the protection of the national identity, of social cohesion, and of the preservation of French culture. The French model of integration of cultural diversity manifests some very specific characteristics, making it very particular in its internal functioning. It is undoubtedly different compared to various models of the Anglo-Saxon world. In France, an immigrant is not necessarily asked overtly to abandon his or her own cultural particularities based on national, ethnic, or racial origin. I mean, ideally, what we do see in the French example is that these cultural particularities are seen as a richness of the individual. On the other hand, um, when we see circulars by the French administration that says, and I quote, the appreciation of the assimilation of a foreigner is based on an ensemble of all elements. First of all, uh, by the level of knowledge of the French language, as well as the participation in the social life. What we do see is that there's a certain behaviors by the French state that is seen as, as desirable. And so it might come into, um, shall we say, in contestation uh, with an individual's own cultural particularities. What we do see, however, is that the level of success of children coming from social environments of foreign origin is still quite low. There are a lot of difficulties in the process of learning the French language, which is reflected uh, when we look at the educational outcomes of, of immigrant uh, sort of children and, and their offspring as well. So we also see that social and spatial segregation represents a significant factor that isolate immigrant groups from French society at large. The common theme when we look at the European models, notably when we look at the United Kingdom, France and Germany, is that immigrants came to these nations for the search for better employment. They came as economic migrants insofar they were looking for better wages. In various examples we've seen into this lecture, what we found is, is that the state generally did not expect many of these migrants to stay. They were seen as temporary guest workers, particularly in the German case. In, in the French case um, and the UK case, we saw that these states did not really factor in that there had to be policies to, to ensure that these minority groups can actually be integrated fully. Equally so in the German case, even though they did not expect the uh, guest workers to stay, we found that uh, ultimately they did. And ultimately, the, in the German case, they did not have a plan to actually integrate fully uh, these particular migrants who came in. This concludes our lecture on the European models. In our next lecture, we'll turn to Asia and the Oceanic models of managing ethnic differences.